I love that video and the modern retelling of the prodigal son. Who here has ever heard the phrase, I told you so, spoken to them? Somebody? Yeah. I told you so. I knew that would happen. What did you do that for? Anybody ever heard that? All the children in the room say, I. (laughs) Who here has ever been the one to say the phrase, I told you so? Why did you do that? What did you do that for? Who here enjoys the way you feel after either one of that, receiving it or speaking it? Not me. And I have been both the receiver of such words and the giver. You've probably done it at some point in your life, and somehow we think that either for ourselves or others, that we can say something to make somebody feel bad or make ourselves feel bad in order to make them or us do better. And it's a lie that that just the idea of making someone feel bad will will make them do better. There's so many times I wish in the interactions with my family and the interactions with people that we serve here at church and people on staff, even the way I've talked to myself, that I would do it from a place of love and comfort that leads to support and correction rather than the times I've spoken from fear and pride that leads to blame and shame. The ability to love well in our world, in the midst of the brokenness of the people that are in it, in the midst of the brokenness of the situations that come from the people involved in it, the level to which we can truly love God others and ourselves well in the midst of brokenness rather than in times of when things are going really well, that actually is what demonstrates our level of spiritual maturity. That the ability to love well in the middle of broken people and broken situations is the the level of spiritual maturity. That's why Jesus, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 that the greatest of these is love. Love is not some kind of sidelined type of Christian virtue that people that are really nice can love well and they have this propensity or trend to niceness and love. And so, of course, Leah can love well. Look at her. They're, getting, they're more supportive than what it actually sounds like in the room right now. But no, it's actually the opposite. The ability to love well is a command that's given to all of us by Jesus, that we're supposed to love for the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself, that we are actually to love well. It's not a secondary or third type of virtue. It's like the premier virtue that illustrates where we are in our, our level of maturity in regards to handling uh, people in this broken world. How can we love well in a world that has so much sin, so much brokenness, so much pain and dysfunction, where you and I are so easily hurt, where we get offended, where we get disappointed, where missed expectations leads to frustration, and that it goes on and on in the lives of the people and the situations around us? How are we actually supposed to love well in that type of environment? Well, today we come to the last message in our 
three-week mini-series on the prodigal son or the parable of the lost son. A couple weeks ago, we spoke about the younger prodigal and his way back home. Last week, Taylor took us on a journey about the older prodigal and his way back home. And uh, people have said that God has helped us to talk about this in new and fresh ways. It's one of the risks about talking about passages of Scripture that are pretty common. We all think we know it all. We've heard it all. Is there anything to be said new? And the goal here today is not for me to be cutesy or try to prove that I've got something fun and new to say, but I am praying and I am desiring that the Holy Spirit would show up in this room and wherever you're watching from online, that you would get a fresh understanding and a fresh outpouring of the love of the Father for you. Because if we get a fresh understanding and taste and an accurate understanding and taste of the love of the Father for us, it changes the way we live. It rewires our mind. It heals our heart. It changes what we say. It changes what we do because we've been transformed by the inside out by the power of the love of God. It doesn't just sound good in worship songs. It's actually meant to prove itself true in real life. And that's what we're going after today because we're talking about the Father today. And today's message is entitled, Welcome Home, I Never Left. And I want us to get that picture that the love of the Father stays steadfast and it stays sure. And even when we as sons and daughters go this way or that way, His love is beautiful and His love will remain. My desire today is that you would realize that the Father loves us so that we can love like the Father. Everybody say that after me. The Father loves us so we can love like the Father. You can type that in the chat online. How we receive the Father's love is then how we can give and live from the place of the Father's love and actually be like Jesus and welcome people home. The picture of the parable of the lost son is actually a picture not of either son in particular, but it's meant to inform us in regards to who God is. And that his love is great, great enough to welcome home sinners. So this, this parable is a story that Jesus tells in order to illustrate the point he is trying to make. As we've said the last couple of weeks, this parable is the last of three parables in this chapter of Luke 15. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And it is not meant to tell us to remember to take care of your sheep, don't lose your coins, and keep your sons at home. That's not the message of this story. It's actually meant to talk about the rejoicing and what the shepherd will do to go after the one, to risk risk the 99, to go after the one. That's the father's heart. That there's going to be a party when the lost is found like that coin is found. And that the father is forgiving and accepting and generous and welcoming to those who have walked away from them, whether in heart, body, mind, or soul. So what does Jesus want to say Well, we read in Luke 15, the reason that he's saying this in verse 1 and 2. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. And you're saying, I go to McDonald's all the time. I always eat with sinners. Look at all the people in the restaurant. But that isn't the picture that you get from this story 
hundreds and hundreds of years ago. The idea of breaking bread together was to say, I validate you, you're a part of my life, I esteem you. It's, it's a symbolic act of eating together that is far more than just bumping into somebody in a restaurant. And so these Pharisees are accusing Jesus of even eating with sinners. And it should speak to us in regards to how we look, view, and judge people. He proceeds to tell these stories through Luke 15 in order to show the Pharisees that actually these messy sinners that I hang out with is the whole reason that I'm here. In the book of Mark, in chapter 2, verse 15, we see a story that he highlights this maybe even stronger. Later, Levi or Matthew, this is after Matthew had been called to be his disciple, invited Matthew was called by Jesus to be his disciple. Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. But when the teachers of religious law, who were, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. So Jesus is telling this story to paint the picture that you're a sinner. That's why I'm here. I didn't come to hang out with the righteous and show that I can do everything right. I came to show you the father and to help you get to him. At this time, I want to mention again the book by Henry Nouwen called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And that God has used this in my life last spring to help shape and, and inform some of my, my thoughts surrounding the Father in particular as we go through this day. And I'm grateful for that material and that resource. We pick up in verse 20 where I'm about to read in chapter 15 of Luke. The younger son has at the beginning asked for his inheritance which is effectively declaring his father dead he goes off squanders the money with riotous and reckless living a famine hits he gets hired by a farmer to feed his pigs but doesn't get paid to do so so he's even wishing he could eat the pig food then he decides before he's ever left the pig pen i'm going to go to my father's house i'm going to save myself I'm going to at least be able to eat well as a servant or a slave or a hired man. And he decides to return home. So here we pick it up in verse 20. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. So I'll interrupt it right there for a moment. The son has made his plan. The son is on the way home. He says what the deal that he's willing to cut with his dad, that in exchange for food, I will be your hired servant. And the dad says, ah! I can't hear you. Somebody get me a robe and a ring and a sandal and a dead calf because we're going to party. Well, they said, go kill the calf and then we'll eat the dead one. The father 
was so excited to see his son that he wasn't going to listen to the deal that the son was presenting as his best option to get back into the family. The father wanted to say, I'm not talking any deal with you. You still are my son. You always were my son. And you're going to be my son from now to eternity, basically, until I really die. You are in. And he begins to display the the realness or the authenticity of his offer by giving important things in that culture. A ring, a robe, and sandals. You think, what's a robe? It's what you wear out of the shower. Sandals are only good two months of the year in Saskatchewan. And I can buy a ring at, uh, what's the name of the little place? Ardeen for a buck. (laughs) Big stinking deal. No, huge stinking deal. Sandals, that's what they traveled in. Robes were like layers and clothes and whatever was going on. And a ring from your father wasn't going to be any Ardeen on clearance special. And then he says, as Taylor highlighted so well last week, they killed the fattened calf, which was a delicacy. Meat wasn't at every meal, and you definitely didn't eat beef at any meal. You don't see the disciples going to catch a heifer. Fish was the item of the day in that area. So, the father, why am I trying to make a scene about this? I want you to not miss what has just taken place. The son is giving his best offer. And the son says, it's not even on the table. Listen to my offer. I'll take you back as son. That's the picture we want to get today. But his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house. Put it on him. Get a ring for his finger, sandals for his feet. Kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. I love it. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the brother, the older brother, comes from the field, starts to hear the dancing. I've got to be at a few weddings that have taken place through this, and you hear the music, you hear the dancing, there's a, there's a celebration going on. And this son comes with his offer. I'm better than him. I'm better than that young piece of scum. Your son, he doesn't even reference reference him as his brother, talks about your son. And he comes, I've got a better offer. How about you treat me like what I really deserve? How about I never left your side? How about I'm ready to party with you because I'm better than anything that guy could have ever offered you. He just disgraced your name. And the father says, I've got a better deal. Come. And enjoy, enjoy the celebration. Catch my heart for the one who has come home. Everything I have is yours. How many of you, when your child misbehaves, you go up to them and you say, you can have anything you want? Right? 
That makes sense, right? That's good discipline, good correction. Oh, you're misbehaving? Don't worry, this is all yours anyways. No, go to your room, get your attitude straight, and once you get your attitude straight, you come out and you behave yourself and you celebrate like you love your brother. (laughs) And you show me some respect. But that's not what the father does. He humbles himself. He goes out to his self-righteous son, and it says that he begged with him. He pleaded with him to come in. Don't stay outside the realm of my love. Don't stay outside the realm of my forgiveness. Don't stay outside the realm of my generosity. Come celebrate with me because the lost is found. Both sons are pursued. The father hears the younger son come and sees him coming and he runs down the road. The father hears that the older son is outside and he leaves the party to plead with him to come. He, both sons are pursued. He's not playing hard to get. He's not saying, at least earn it. Show me some respect. Show me that you deserve to be back in the house and I'll receive you back. We don't know what the older son's response was to the begging and pleading of the father to step back in, but we know that the son, the younger son stepped back in. The offer was to both to come back in to the house of their master. The father says, welcome home. I never left. I've been here and I'll be ready to welcome you. I was always here. Henry Nouwen writes about the father's love that the love was so great, it could not force the son to stay. We all think if I loved him enough, I could make him do what he's supposed to do. No, instead, he writes, it cannot force, constrain, push, or pull. The love offers the freedom to reject that love or to love in return. The love that the father showed was a love for them to make their own choice and to either love in return or not love in return. Both sons misbehaved in this situation. And this parable is being told from the vantage point that the father is a reflection of Jesus. Like Jesus is that father in this story. That's who he's referring to. So we know that that picture is that of a perfect father. Nobody in this room is a perfect father. You didn't grow up with a perfect father, even if you knew your father. So what do we do in this broken world? And so I'm going to sideline for a second to talk about something that I don't talk about enough often enough and it's to the parents in the room and the parents that are online the parents that have been and the parents that will be and the parents that currently are you're so awesome we see you loving your children well and it's a difficult world and for some reason jesus put in scripture a picture where a perfect father had sons walk away from him And so in a world where there's high pressure for performance, high pressure for how your kids behave, high pressure for how cute their pictures are on Instagram when you expose their names prematurely to the world around them, (laughs) that you are doing well, whether you have young children, elementary, teens, or now you're trying to figure out how to parent young adults, or now you're parenting adult children all the pressure of the world of are they well behaved do they have it together what school this what job that i want you to know that you have permission to be yourself you have permission to figure it out you have permission to make mistakes 
You're doing great in this very difficult world. And you can be okay even when your kids don't seem like they're okay. Yes, parenting matters. Yes, we want to grow in love. Yes, we want to grow in patience and ability and skill. But parent involves training. It's a very short window where parenting actually involves control. It's for a very young time when as they're babies and toddlers that you can actually control and make them do what they're supposed to do. But healthy parenting recognizes pretty early on that as quick as you can move into coaching and training and encouraging them to make good decisions and giving them a safe place to make some decisions and fail by the time they get out of the house, that that's a safer way to do it rather than trying to control them for 18 or, in some of your cases, 25 (laughs) years while they're in your house. If there's anybody in that state, I apologize. It was just a one-off joke. I'm not actually meaning anybody. Um, You don't want to become good at control, but rather you want to become good at love, patience, understanding, direction, and correction. You have permission to not have it all together. You have permission to ask for help. You have permission to talk amongst your peers to figure it out. And you definitely need to know you have permission to ask awkward questions of people who have gone before you and have older children or children out of the house now. You are allowed, if you're in this church, to bring your children and they have permission to not behave perfectly. They have permission to make noise. They have permission to, as you've seen before, run past me while I'm speaking even. You have permission... Pardon me. You have permission to take them outside and to calm them down and to settle them. You have permission to use the nursery and to put them into children's church. You have permission to figure it out without fearing or feeling like you're going to be judged if your child is doing something wrong at the exact right time. Somebody should say amen to that for the parents. Louder. Parents in the room and online, we love you and we think you're doing a great job. And you need to see that no matter even if you've done your best, your child still has a choice in the end. And our job is to have the Father's heart and to display his actions to those around us, no matter what our children or the people around us are looking like. So as I was preparing for this message It's easy to talk about what the father did in this story and what we should model. But I want to first start with a couple things about what he does not do. The father does not do pride and resentment. That in both those sons coming home, that he humbled himself. He ran to the son that was messed up. He begged with the one that was acting entitled. And he did not stand in the place about saying, what about me? What about me? What about my home? What about the resources I shared? What about my other hired servants? What will they do if if, uh, you come home and I just accept you this way and they're going to think that they can do whatever they want? And he just, he could have gone in so many directions. He could have gone in so many directions that would have um, fed his resentment. He could have been resentful for his sons. That after everything that he provided growing up, that he would have actually um, taken their actions, owned it personally, taken personal offense to his kids' actions and internalize it and become resentful and proud and say, I don't think so. 
What's the one? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool, fool me twice, shame on me. Is that how the world talks about it? The father doesn't display that attitude at all. Instead, he's, he's welcoming. He doesn't let himself go down pride and resentment. The problem with pride and resentment, or one of them, is that it leads to very, thank you very much, brother. The spirit is moving. Way to go, wife. <clears throat> Those, if we get stuck in pride and resentment and we make those difficult situations about ourselves, it leads to unhealthy cutoffs because we can't actually hold the awkwardness of the space where we have our own pain, offense, and hurt. And somehow I'm supposed to hold you safely in the midst of that. If I'm full of hurt and pain, pride and resentment, I am definitely going to project on you the pain of my own heart and life. And I'm going to say things I reject or I'm going to say, you know what? It's just not worth it. And we're going to push him to the side. Now, this is not to be messed up with, well, what are you saying? Or you can never have boundaries or you can never have rules. What I am saying is you can totally do that. And sometimes the actions will look the same, but the challenge is to have motivations that are different. So if you operate from pride and fear, that motivation is pride, fear, anger, resentment. And you will operate in that way and you will bring harm to the relationship. If you grow in the love of the Father, you then are able to have healthy boundaries. You are able to actually make some cutoffs at some times in order to protect yourself or protect the people you're responsible for. But when you do it from a posture and a position and motivation of love, you actually have a total different heart and attitude and you bring a different environment and tone to the situation, even if the other person still feels like they're one and the same. You've left the door open. You've positioned yourself differently. If you don't, you get a hard heart. So the the father does not do pride and resentment, which is all about him. What about me? What about me? What about me? And the father does not do, in your second point, shame and blame, which is all about you, all about you, all about you. I can't believe you think you can just crawl home. I don't believe that through riotous living, you took all my hard work and labor. Do you remember what it took to make it through those famine years and all the business dealings I do and how I leave home and come back and you just blew it up in smoke? I think you'll help me earn some of that money back before you get into the right position in my household again. And we blame and we shame and we judge and we force people like that to now live under the weight of condemnation. And condemnation kills. It's like a wet blanket, a black cloud that you walk through your life feeling nothing but guilt and shame and pain. And somehow you're supposed to pick yourself up by your bootstraps, put on a happy face and act like you've got joy. Condemnation, living under the weight of condemnation and trying to exhibit joy are like antithesis and opposites to each other. We have to get out from the the idea of putting on people blame and shame and we have to get out of the way of living under shame and blame. It's in our culture and unfortunately it's in church that people can be judged and they can be shamed and they can be blamed rather than to be held safely in the midst of them making mistakes or making their way back home. 1 John four sixteen to 19 says this, We know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. God is love and all who live in love live in God and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment. 
but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment, and this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he loved us first. We need to be able to receive the Father's love so that we can live in Father's love. If we are loved by the Father, we can love like the Father. That is where we're going in this. But if we operate out of fear that our fear is that our actions are going to be punished by an angry father, all we live is kind of timid and fearful of when am I going to upset him next. But for people who are part of the household of the father, as in those who follow Jesus, have claimed him to be Lord and Savior, and now God is their father, you are spiritual sons and daughters. So now he's not into punishing you because he put all the punishment on Jesus on the cross. So if he can't punish you, you can't be fearful of it. What you instead do is you accept the fact that he's a loving father and he wants to discipline us. And he wants to teach us how to live in righteousness and holiness. He has the best plan for our life. And like a son and a daughter, we need to be trained in how to walk in that way. So he loves us well and he corrects us and he blesses us and he encourages us. And if we can get it set in our heart that the father loves us unconditionally and from that kind of place, not from a place of i got to punish him because he's my son, but I'm going to love him because he's my son, it rewires, like I said, our mind, heart, and soul and we can actually live differently. It is so good. So the father, what does he do? The father is compassionate. Henry Nouwen writes that as father, the only authority he claims for himself is the authority of compassion. There's all kinds of postures and, and positions that that father could claim in that moment, but what's most evident to both sons is that he was coming to them out of compassion. And that he had a soft heart. He said to the son, no, you're not going to be a slave. He said to the older, no, everything I already have is yours. You don't need to bargain for a goat. We're having a beef for crying out loud. And you want to pretend and complain about a goat? Everything I have is yours. What's the story behind the story? When the younger son claimed his inheritance, he actually was saying, I'll take my portion. And I know my older, older brother gets two. Right, The older son got double portion in all those type of times and places. So the younger son had claimed his. The older son already knew that he got double of whatever the younger son did. And he was complaining that he didn't get a goat even though he had the whole inheritance coming to him. The father didn't play one son off the other. He didn't say, yeah, at least you're humble and not proud. Or yeah, at least you did stick around and, you, and didn't leave like he did. We don't want to get into comparison in our love. We want to love compassionately. The second thing the father is, the father is hope-filled. The father is expectant. The father looks down the road and sees the son and he runs to him. The father hears that the son is outside the house and he goes to him. And he is somehow clinging on to hope that when he sees that son and he runs to him, that the son will receive the gift of the father's love again. And the, fa- and the father, when he steps outside the house, believes that he has enough strength and enough words and enough love that he could actually convince his arrogant son to step back in under the auspices of the love of the father. And he is hopeful that the sons will come back home to be with him. 
Where do you find your hope? Where do you place your trust? What voices do you let permeate your heart in a world and a society that is full of doom and gloom? There is never, like I, I'm listening, I like listening to the news, but I recognize that. Why is it so special? Because a newscast all of a sudden finds one positive thing to throw on at the end of a newscast. But in lighter news, but in good news today. Like the world is so full of dark, dingy, drab news, and it's real. And I'm not saying we shouldn't know it, that we shouldn't pray for it. But if that's all we're letting into our hearts and minds, we will let that dominate not just our thinking, but our actions. King David, in one of his troubled times when he had come to the end of himself, Scripture says, David encouraged himself in the Lord. If you don't get into the Word, if you don't worship, if you don't pray, you can still go to heaven. But the journey on this life won't be that great because you won't be renewed in your mind. It'll be like the uh, walking around with those big shoes, uh, rubber boots that I used to tramp through the muddy garden with as a little kid and the mud gets inside and the mud gets clunked on the sides and you're just kind of trudging. And you can't fly and soar with Jesus when you're locked down in the dirt of this world. That we need to be able to have hope and encourage ourselves in the Lord. And so we need to have him fill us up and renew our mind and renew our thinking. Otherwise, we just finally trudge our way into heaven rather than to be encouraged in what he has for us. The world's version of love is conditional. It's often selfish. It's easily wounded. It's easily offended, easily hurt. It can often depend on how we love. There's a back and forth. There's an exchange. Whereas our Father's love is unconditional. It's able to withstand hurt and offense. It doesn't have to be dictated. It doesn't, the way it gets treated is not how it's going to have an outcome all the time. We use a term around here through emotionally healthy discipleship called differentiation. And it's a distinguishing feature for, the, for us as we spiritually mature. What am I saying? I'm not going to hang, hang out on it long, but it's about we can actually be ourselves, be who we've been created to be without being, viewing ourselves as the sum of everybody's opinions about us and actions about us around us. Differentiation says, I can be a part of this world, I can be a part of this relationship with you, but it doesn't mean that I'm losing myself in you and that I just have to do or cave to your thoughts, your beliefs, your whims, your wishes. I can actually have a healthy relationship with you while still hanging on to myself. It means you can be who you are truly supposed to be and created to be without being driven by the things that other people do and think about you. You can make your own decisions by your own self rather than being defined by others. And for a father, and that's my goal today is to say, don't just hang out as a younger son or an older son, but we're trying to make our way to be the father ourselves that we can welcome and love people. That if you are able to differentiate yourself and not just be tossed to and fro by the whims and the occurrences and the beliefs and the opinions of those around you, you are actually able to receive, welcome, and love people without projecting all your own stuff on it or just being driven by their opinions of you. You're actually healthy enough to do that. People like this, they can choose before God how they want to be without being controlled by the approval or disapproval of others. And it's a skill to grow in. And God wants to help us mature in that, that we can be our true selves under his love while still holding on to the mess of the world around us.
Otherwise, we act out of our offense, our hurt, our pride, or assumptions. We get enmeshed in other people's lives and think we have to do what they want us to do. So how do we be like the Father? Henry Nouwen ends his book by highlighting three points that I put in your notes. That in order to actually be a compassionate father, in order to be a compassionate mother, in order to receive people out of their brokenness and their mess, we have to do these three things. One is we have to be grieving. That we actually grieve the mess and the brokenness of the situation. That when somebody is left home, when there's a broken relationship, when there's been abuse or trauma and wrong things take place, we don't just uh, gloss over it and say, that doesn't matter. It's okay. It shouldn't really bother me. God's taking care of it. Where we or our loved ones have been affected by it, we actually have to acknowledge that that was hard. That was wrong. That was painful. That makes me angry. That I'm, I'm frustrated. I'm hurt. I'm whatever. And we have to acknowledge the depth of what's going on with us so that we can be truthful before the Lord. God already knows our hearts. If we're just glossing over the depth and the depravity of something um, on the outside, but, but in our hearts we're wrecked by it, God knows that. He wants to work with our authentic selves. So we have to tell him and walk through the grieving process. And when we grieve, then we can actually move to forgiveness. When there's actually some kind of offense and some wrong, even if it's against us or somebody that we love, we've acknowledged the depth of it. Now there's actually something to forgive. And forgiving actually isn't just in your own strength. There is stuff in all of your lives in this room and online that you in and of yourself cannot forgive because it's too hard, it's too hurtful, it's been too difficult, it's, it's affected and turned your whole life in a certain direction. That you actually need to receive the love of the Father and the forgiveness yourself, grieve the pain so that you actually have something you can forgive with. And Jesus will help you do that. And then finally, we see the, the compassionate, loving Father operate generously towards his loving, towards the sons that he loved. And I'm not saying that if somebody squanders all their inheritance that you just come back and cut them a fresh new check. This is not what the sermon is about. But it does say that your attitude and your heart and your welcome back is that of a generous nature, generous spirit. And the Father does actually challenge us in regards to the logistical outworking of that. Are people in your life that have walked away going to need to earn their way back in order to be blessed by being under your care and relationship with you. The band is coming at this time, or the worship team. We often see ourselves as the younger, having walked away, we disobeyed you, God, we've got to come back, please forgive me. Or we walk, we've walked away and we've got judgmental, we've got proud, we've got arrogant, Jesus, forgive me. And those are good things to acknowledge, and they will be part of our spiritual journey from now until we get to be in heaven with him. And we need to be soft to the Holy Spirit convicting us so that we can repent of those moments. But the goal is that we would begin to shift, to grow, and to mature, to actually become like the Father. That we would be the Father's hands and feet. That we would be able to love people that are making their way back or coming for the first time into the family of God. That we can handle people's messes without judging them or writing them off in the sideline because it's not what we would have done. Even though we never know what we would do because we've never been in their direct situation. We are to receive the Father's love in order to love like the Father. And that is what we are called to. 
And my prayer today is that you would get a fresh download of the Father's love for you, and that as you are transformed by that, you will indeed be able to love like the Father. The worship team is going to lead us in good, good Father again as we focus on that, and then I'm going to come back and lead us in two prayers. The first, the first prayer would be about your own life, and some of you have been hurt by words that have been spoken over you. You have been treated harshly by somebody in their pride and resentment, and they have blamed and shamed you. And the words that they have spoken have gone like darts into your heart, and you have been hurt. And you are trying to live a life under the condemnation and guilt and judgment that has come along with that. I want to let you know today that Holy Spirit wants to meet you in that, and that he wants to heal you as you release that, And he wants to heal your heart and speak his words of life over you. And then there's another group of us that we have been the ones to speak those words. We have operated in pride and resentment. We have spoken words of blame and shame. And we need Jesus to forgive us so that we can operate differently. And the truth is, it's probably most of us for both of those. That we've both received and we've both given because what happens, the world's statement is hurt people hurt people and we need jesus to heal us so that we no longer walk around being hurt and hurting others and so surrender to the love of a good good father today as we sing this and we will pray and release that to the lord together